So fall is my favorite time of year, most definitely. But I do also enjoy the holiday season. Thanksgiving allows me to really dive into my love of all things culinary. And the Christmas season does the same with a little extra sentiment as we all become rather reflective as another year comes to a close. It's when we take inventory, right? Beyond that, it's the time of year we explore one of my favorite subgenres of horror, the Christmas horror film. Now, there are more than a few horror films which use a holiday theme, right? Halloween, of course, April Fool's Day. There are some Fourth of July horror films. Blood Rage and Thanksgiving are Thanksgiving-themed horror films. Critters 2 uses Easter as a backdrop. My Bloody Valentine. But the Christmas horror film is... Man, it's something else altogether. I suspect it has to do with horror being set against the backdrop of a time of year where we're supposed to be on our best behavior and showing goodwill toward others. The season of giving and joy. And because of its origins and religion, it's kind of seen as untouchable, right? I mean, don't you dare diminish the veneer of Christmas by using it as a setting for violence and debauchery. And if you do, there better be a theme of redemption and rescue via the Christmas spirit in the end. So Christmas films feel a little taboo to a certain degree. Now, 1974's Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark, who ironically also gave us the best feel-good Christmas movie ever made, A Christmas Story, and I will die on that hill, by the way, was the first to really gain notoriety. You know, I was only six when that film came out, so I don't know if there was much uproar when it was released, but I doubt it. Although I would add an asterisk here. The 1951 adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Scrooge, starring Alistair Sim, plays very much like a horror film. I mean, the story really is in the horror vein to begin with, and that version really leans into it. The German Gothic-inspired visuals are really chilling at times, and it's my favorite adaptation, along with the 1971 Chuck Jones animated film, which also scared the hell out of me as a kid. That one's available on YouTube, and you should check it out. It's pretty great. So while there are quite a few Christmas horror films I enjoy now, there are two which stand out to me because their themes and narratives are actually pretty deep and relevant even if their writers and filmmakers didn't realize it at the time. And as a screenwriter, this often happens. Uh, You think you're writing one film, and when all is said and done, something else emerges from their work. Something you were not conscious of, but your creative subconscious was, because the theme is pretty clear when you take an objective look at it. So your creative subconscious was very aware of what it was doing. And I think that's the case here, especially with the first one. Deadly night. 
So, of course, the first is, no question, the big daddy of the Christmas horror film, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Now, any horror fan should know by now that this 1984 film caught the attention of the religious right. They protested due to the film having a character dressed as Santa Claus killing people. Which is odd, because it wasn't the first film to do that. But by 1984, the social dynamics had changed, and this film was the perfect target to illustrate the attack on family values. It also had an effective television ad campaign, which was eventually pulled. And I'm sad to say, Siskel and Ebert came out hard against the film and took part in one of the first cancel campaigns. During their review, Gene Siskel gave the names of the people behind the film, the writer, the director, the producer, the production company, and called them out. Our x-ray subject this week, the controversial Santa Claus killer movie, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Actually, there have been two controversies about Silent Night, Deadly Night. Even before the film was released a couple of weeks ago, its TV ad campaign caused a furor with its brief depiction of an axe-carrying Santa Claus. The distributor of this film, TriStar Pictures, which is co-owned by Columbia Pictures, CBS, and Home Box Office, pulled the commercial out of release after a week of protest by parents led by a Milwaukee group. Of course, commercials like that usually die out after a week anyway, so thanks a lot, fellas. But there's no question in my mind that the showing of Santa with an axe on free TV and commercials is sick and sleazy and mean-spirited. So let's repeat the names of the people who did it. TriStar Pictures, co-owned by Columbia Pictures, CBS, and Home Box Office. Shame on you. Now, as for the film, I've got news for you. It's worse than the TV ads. Telling a typical mad slasher story about a boy who witnesses his father being shot and his mother being stabbed to death by a maniac in a Santa Claus suit. So now the traumatized kid grows up and is asked to work in a, in a toy store as Santa one Christmas, and it freaks him out. He impales one naked girl on a set of antlers, spears another woman with a bow and arrow, and another with a knife, and yes, we even see Santa give one little girl a bloody knife as a gift and threaten another little girl with physical punishment as he sits on his lap. You might think that it would be funny, Roger, or it's played as quite thick in the film. So let me repeat the names of the writer and director and producers of this film. Michael Hickey wrote the film, Charles E. Sellier Jr. directed it, and Ira Richard Barmack produced it. You people have nothing to be proud of, even if you made a few bucks off of all the negative publicity. Your profits truly are blood money. Roger happily joined in. Now, I know later in life, Roger sort of massaged his view on horror films, but I do think this is a bit of a black mark on their legacy. I mean, look, nobody's history or legacy is perfect. We should, you know, all get to the point and acknowledge that. But they pretty much openly called for the film to be pulled, even if they didn't say it directly. It was clear. It was clear what they were doing. So, yes, you know, overall, I think, you know, Siskel and Ebert have, have a, a long legacy that's worth noting. But this is definitely going to be one of those little... Little little hiccups in I think in, in in their history. Unfortunately, they spent so much time being offended they didn't bother to take the time to actually think about the film. Well, I have. I've spent many hours contemplating this film under the influence of many IPAs and bourbons at Portland's various watering holes. To anyone who would listen, specifically at Blackwell's, which was a bar in Southeast Portland, which sadly no longer exists. It's truly one of the great skeevy Portland bars. So you'll be getting the sober version of this. It's probably better after a few bourbons, but as William Money would say in Unforgiven, I ain't like that no more. Okay, so on the surface, Selenite Deadly Night is about a five-year-old boy named Billy who travels with his family to visit his paternal grandfather in a mental asylum on Christmas Eve. When they arrive, the grandfather appears to be in a catatonic state, completely non-responsive to anyone or anything around him, and he just stares into the void. 
When mom and dad go off to speak with the doctors about grandpa's condition, they leave Billy alone with grandpa who slowly emerges from this catatonic state, which we now understand is a complete ruse. He dislikes pretending he's that way, all the while he's listening and completely aware. He then tells Billy that he better watch out for Santa Claus because he only rewards kids who have been good all year. And if you've been bad, even a little bit, you better run when you see Santa because he's going to punish you. Of course, when mom and dad return, grandpa slips back into his phony, unresponsive condition and Billy now leaves with a new understanding of who and what Santa is all about. Santa Claus is the omnipotent disciplinarian who punishes little boys and girls who have been less than perfect. So Billy, knowing he's been less than perfect, has no desire to see Santa Claus now. While they're on their way home, they cross paths with a man dressed in a Santa suit who apparently has a stalled vehicle on the side of the road. Mom and Dad stop the help, only for that man to turn out to be a criminal who kills them both trying to steal the car. But Billy's able to get away, and the man doesn't harm him or his baby brother who's crying inside the front, the car in the front seat. So, what Billy has just witnessed confirms what his crazy grandfather has just told him. Santa Claus is to be feared, not revered. Some years later, we catch up with 10-year-old Billy, who is now living in an orphanage with his little brother ran by the Catholic nuns. This particular orphanage is ran by an aging, rigid mother superior who believes discipline is the cure-all for uh, all of Billy's behavior problems. While there's a younger nun who recognizes all the symptoms of PTSD, she's powerless to intervene for the most part, and thus Billy gets further affirmation that discipline and the threat of punishment is what turns people into good citizens. Cut to Billy at the age of 18, where he gets a job at a toy store. He is indeed a solid employee and upstanding citizen until he's told to, he has to play Santa for the kids coming to the store. This, of course, causes a psychological breakdown, and Billy then takes on the personality of the Santa Claus he's been told about, the one who punishes people who are naughty. And his killing spree ends with him getting shot by the police as he returns to the orphanage to punish Mother Superior because, at some point, he realizes she's actually a shitty person and needs to be punished. While it's not clear how Billy comes to that determination, it actually makes narrative sense and bookends the movie quite well. So, on the surface, the film is about a kid who goes through a traumatic experience becomes a killer as a result. But is it really that simple? No, not really. This movie is about the failure of systems. And how, when systems fail, our most valuable asset, which is also our most vulnerable asset, children usually pay the price. Children always pay the price for the decisions and actions of adults. Billy and his brother are the victims of the failure of multiple systems here, some of them repeat offenders. First, a mental health care system fails Billy. Grandpa is clearly being warehoused in this mental facility and probably isn't receiving actual care. And at some point, a qualified doctor should have determined that Grandpa wasn't well and probably should not have been left alone with Billy. Now, this, is, this one may be forgiven if we assume Grandpa was really good at selling his catatonic state, thus preventing himself from being properly diagnosed. But it still feels like a failure to some degree. And maybe that's also on mom and dad for leaving a five-year-old alone in a friggin' mental facility. So that's the first one. Second, the criminal justice system fails Billy and his family. It's pretty clear the guy who kills his parents is a career criminal. He's probably done time, and he drops a body so easily he has enough criminal experience to understand you never leave a breathing witness, even for a simple convenience store robbery. And if you're going to drop one body... 
you might as well drop two because they can't execute you twice. So better to get rid of all the witnesses to avoid the gas chamber altogether. If he could have found Billy, he probably would have killed him. He leaves the baby alive because the baby isn't going to say a damn thing, right? So there is enough evidence that this guy had a track record and could have been stopped if not for the failures of the criminal justice system. Third, child services in the foster care system. Now, this is one I know a little something about. I was a soccer coach for seven years, and one year I had a player who was placed on my team by a child services caseworker. She had been a soccer player herself and knew this would be good for her. During that time, the kid was placed back into her biological home, and it was a disaster. I damn near adopted this child myself to get her out of that environment. And my experience in going through that process is that child services systems are underfunded, undermanned, and overwhelmed. So they do use outside programs to fill in the gaps. In the case of Silent Night, Deadly Night, they used a Catholic-run orphanage, which happened to be run by a nun who did not believe in psychiatry. Billy is clearly suffering from PTSD, needs therapy, but in her view, which would also be a generational view, all a kid needs to straighten up is structure and discipline. And nobody from child services in this film ever thought to check in with Billy because he was being cared for by nuns. I mean, what could go wrong, right? And that's not a dunk on the church, despite what we know about some of the things that have been going on, right? It really is a generational view of therapy and psychiatry. But still, we knew about PTSD in 1984, the effects of trauma. So Billy getting no therapy is pretty inexcusable and a failure of the system. As a result, when Billy is asked by Mr. Sims, the toy store owner, to play Santa Claus for the kids, Billy doesn't protest even if he doesn't want to do it. Why? Because he's been taught you don't question authority. If you do, you get punished. And being raised in the echo chamber of the orphanage, Billy has no real-world experience, and thus when he has his psychological break, aided by alcohol, which he has never had before, he acts accordingly to all of the programming his head has been filled with by adults. Which, by the way, the uncut version does a much better job of portraying the psychological break. And it's really Mr. Sims who inadvertently, several J and B's down, sets Billy on his path. Not to mention Billy's confusion about how to deal with his raging hormones as he's very attracted to his co-worker, Angela. Uh, after all, he's been taught sex is a sin by Mother Superior. So his mental breakdown um, is fueled by self-loathing for his sexual desires and the cognitive dissonance causes him to completely reject, quote-unquote, Billy and become the righteous Santa Claus who will issue punishment wherever necessary. So the next time someone tells you that Silent Night, Deadly Night is just a simple exploitive slasher flick, you tell them, nope, it's actually a thesis on how adults and their flawed systems damage the most vulnerable in our society, children, and create the Billies of the world. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, Siskel and Ebert. This Christmas, Santa's going to make everyone happy. The grown-ups. And the kids. Christmas evil. The non-believers. Watch out! And the screamers. And this Christmas, you better believe in Santa, or he'll slay you. Yes, the second film I want to talk about is the 1980 horror film, 
Christmas Evil. Originally titled You Better Watch Out, and also known as Terror in Toyland. While it didn't get the same reaction in the United States as Silent Night, Deadly Night would four years later, it did get that reaction in the UK when it was released, landing on the UK's infamous banned video nasties list, which is now considered a badge of honor. Uh, the film starts out in the late 1940s, where a young Santa-obsessed boy named Harry, on Christmas Eve, sneaks downstairs with his mom and brother to see if they can catch Santa Claus in the act of delivering presents. Sure enough, Santa comes down the chimney, delivers the goods, and disappears. When they go back to their rooms, his brother tells him, eh, it wasn't Santa, it was Dad. Harry doesn't buy it, doesn't believe him. So he sneaks back downstairs to see what Santa brought them. When he does, he catches Santa and his mother doing the old Mr. and Mrs. Claus Cinemax After Hours cosplay bit, if you know what I mean. Yes, Santa is gonna get on with his mom. Now, it's not clear if Harry then realizes Santa isn't real, and he knows it's his dad, or if he really thinks Santa is getting it on with his mom. Either way, Harry's world has been shattered, which is demonstrated visually by his smashing a snow globe of the North Pole on the floor. Some 30 years later, Harry now works at a toy factory, because of course he does. He still worships Santa Claus, and he sleeps in Santa-themed pajamas. His apartment is littered with all things Santa and Christmas, and he has a childlike view of the world. He doesn't fit in at work where his co-workers use foul language and don't understand the importance of making toys for kids, especially at this time of year. And then it becomes clear he's actually trying to do Santa's job by keeping track of the kids in the neighborhood and noting it in a ridiculously large journal. You know, who's been naughty and who's been nice? Number one on his naughty list is a little boy by the name of Mas Garcia, who just loves looking at dad's porn mags. But when the realities of the cold, hard, cruel world begin chipping away just a little too much at the snow globe Harry lives in, he snaps. And it's not long before Harry no longer exists, and there is only the Santa Claus within. Bodies fall as Harry goes about his Santa business delivering punishment, but ends in a mind-bending climax, which sees Harry actually become Santa Claus. Or maybe it's just in his own mind. Again, on the surface, this is about a kid who experiences something somewhat traumatic, catching Santa Claus getting it on with your mom, and his world eventually falls apart as a result as an adult, ending in violence and blood. But what's this movie really about? When you think about it, think about the bedroom, which is just themed with Santa Claus stuff, and Santa Claus pajamas, Santa Claus sheets, everything around him, little Santa Claus toys, and Santa Claus, say, action figures. Yes. It's about something I've been talking a lot about lately, and others are now beginning to talk about as well. It's about the toxicity of nostalgia and arrested development. Harry simply cannot let go of his childhood things, and thus is completely incapable of getting along in the adult world. And when that bubble is threatened, violent outbursts and behavior is the immediate defense mechanism. It's been interesting to see others finally clue in to, uh, to how the current addiction to nostalgia is actually beginning to hurt our culture. Society is in this perpetual taffy pole as we try to move on from our past, but are always tethered to it until it eventually breaks in some sort of a messy fashion. Harry's brother has grown up to have what would be considered a normal you know, adult life. 
good job, kids, wife, with whom he has spontaneous sex with on the couch after she whisks the kids off to bed. All of this is what Harry sees when he snoops on them. And when he does spy on their impromptu intimacy, he immediately flashes back to that moment where his childhood is shattered by seeing his mother and his father as Santa doing the same in their living room. And his immediate response is to, to both instances is to retreat even further into the fantasy. This is also why he continues to avoid his brother, canceling on them at the last minute for Thanksgiving dinner. His brother's normal life represents a far too real threat to the illusion. Look at what happens when you dare say something evenly slightly negative about Star Wars or an MCU movie. I mean, Scorsese mentions in an interview that they aren't quote-unquote adult cinema, but are more of an amusement park ride, and the reaction was, I mean, you saw it. It really wasn't that different than Harry. Both of these films, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Christmas Evil, are stories about being anchored in the past and how that anchor eventually drowns the main characters. Both are about characters not getting the help they need to avoid disaster. What they definitely are not is throwaway horror films or simple exploitive slasher movies. They actually have something to say, and it's worth listening to. (laughs) 